Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, as usual. In a few moments, we'll hear from the sociologist Daniel Aldana-Cohen on the importance of housing in any Green New Deal. And at the bottom of the hour, Joel Whitney will talk about the CIA's history as a major purveyor of fake news. First, climate and housing. Climate change seems like such a vast and intimidating topic, one that can make one feel helpless and inspire the urge just to turn the page. But the proposal for a Green New Deal, a resolution introduced to Congress by the inspiring newcomer, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the long-serving Senator Ed Markey, is a fine way to focus one's thoughts on the topic and in a constructive fashion. Last week, Theo Rio-Francos, one of the editors of a series of articles, current and forthcoming in Jacobin Magazine, offered an overview of the series and of the topic. This week, we'll hear from one of the contributors to that series, Daniel Aldana-Cohen, on the central role of housing in a Green New Deal. Cohen is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Housing earns a passing mention in uh, this Green New Deal resolution, but it's not a centerpiece. Uh, and you think it should be, right? Housing belongs at the very core of a Green New Deal proposal. Okay, why is it so central? Or should it be so central? I would say there are three main reasons why housing belongs at the core of a Green New Deal. The first is that because of exploding costs and the market structure of housing in the United States, it is just as central to inequality as unaffordable services like Medicare, and just as central to inequality as uh, underemployment or unemployment. Second, millions and millions of new people, probably upwards of 20 million people in this century, will need new homes as a result of displacement caused by extreme weather that it's too late to prevent. And third, building new housing and doing it right will be absolutely central to decarbonizing the built environment. Density without affordable housing can't get you where you need to go. The building sector is responsible for about 39% of energy consumption in the United States. It needs to be decarbonized and a tedious, long program of building upgrades all by itself just isn't going to provide the momentum that you need to decarbonize the built environment. Yeah, the Boston Globe, I get their daily emails uh, this morning. They had a story on how Cambridge is a city uh, that is, is very dense, very pedestrian friendly, yet they just can't uh, break uh, the more affluent residents of their uh, their car habit. So as you say, uh, density is not enough, and Cambridge is living proof of that. That's right. It turns out that even in the densest spaces, the wealthiest residents do have cars. That's one. Beyond that, if you look at the full carbon footprint of consumption, the benefits of density to the full carbon fr footprint uh, for affluent people are almost entirely canceled out by their private consumption, iPads, plane trips, uh, and so on. Overwhelmingly, the lowest carbon places to live in the world are neighborhoods that are dense, have quality access to public transit, to other forms of public services, and that are anchored by public and affordable housing. Okay, now you have a very ambitious uh, housing goal, what, 10 million units over the next decade. That sounds like a big number. How big is it and uh, how possible is it? 10 million units in 10 years sounds huge, and it's big. I take this number and a lot of inspiration from a report called Social Housing in the United States put out by the People's Policy Project. Right now, the United States is building well upwards of a million units of housing per year. The new governor of California, Gavin Newsom, wants to build three and a half million units in four years. If you look at Sweden in the 1960s, facing a major housing shortage, they built a million units in 10 years, but they had at the time barely over three million units then. And once again, if you look at the numbers of people who will be displaced by climate change, 13 million from sea level rise alone in the next several decades, and 10 million public housing units starts to seem feasible. I think if some of that ends up being repair of extremely damaged existing homes, that's fine to me. There's obviously a ton of housing stock that's extremely low quality. Uh, in the United States right now. And then just a couple other things. I mean, I think we have to have a handle on the need. Close to half of the renter households in the U.S. pay over a third of their income in rent. Over 10 million households pay over half their income in rent. We know that there's a huge foreclosure crisis. There's an eviction crisis, which is impossible to count because most evictions are de facto. We have gentrification all across the country. The need for high-quality public housing that breaks the market logic that gives people quality, you know, no carbon homes where they have a basis to live a, a good life is just absolutely enormous. The last thing I'd say is, you know, I mentioned California, that even the mainstream democratic kind of establishment is starting to cotton on to this. There's a Center for American Progress report calling for 1 million homes in five years. So if you just do your basic arithmetic of trying to do a lot better than the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, and you follow the direction that they're going, that already points you towards 10 million, uh, you know, public no-carbon homes uh, in 10 years. 
And as uh, we've turned away from any kind of public provision for anything, uh, the, the liberal approach to uh, housing for poor people is but a lot of tax credits and, and de- developer subsidies, right? That's right. Since the late 1980s, the main program for affordable housing is something called the low-income housing tax credit. I mean, I think it's probably good to think of it as something like an Obamacare for housing in the sense, on the one hand, that you wouldn't want to just scrap it with no alternative because it does provide a lot of money for housing, but it's extremely complex to build or operate any one unit. Arranging for these tax credits is a nightmare for local officials. The bang for the buck of dollars invested keeps going down, so you keep getting less housing units per money spent because building costs are increasing, but also things like land costs are increasing. So it's really a mechanism for building affordable housing that is completely vulnerable in all the bad ways to the market and is just increasingly unable to provide anything close to the need. And what's discouraging is you see, like, for instance, in California, the sort of default way to increase affordable housing is simply to put more money into these tax credits. I think it's really important to to think about this federally and in terms of tax credits, which is such a good question, uh, Doug, because we've gotten trapped on the left where housing has become a, a local issue. It's about gentrification of my neighborhood and maybe the level of my city, or it's about these zoning fights, maybe at most at the state level. So the socialist left is good at talking about national programs like healthcare and talking about conflicts that don't seem to be place-bound only, like over the workplace. But once you realize that housing has been and could be and should be a national issue with national support from the federal government, then you enable a kind of federal housing politics that we want to make comparable to Medicare for All, free tuition in public universities. We need a kind of a slogan and idea that puts the federal government on the hook to deliver something really big and meaningful. Um, And to do that, for housing, I think we have to break out of uh, debate about gentrification in any particular neighborhood. Yeah, we've come a long way since when uh, housing finance was a local affair, when you you got a loan from your local savings loan. It's now a national, international market, really, in in housing finance. So it's the furthest thing from a local issue, even though it might feel like one. That's absolutely right. I mean, you have gigantic financial companies who are buying up distressed properties and essentially turning them into Uberized rental properties where, you know, you use an app to request a plumber and that sort of thing. But it is absolutely a, a national issue. And again, what causes you know, inequality in this country? And, and what in particular causes racial inequality, which is something that the social left, socialist left could be better on? It's about homeownership. And when the solution, as Kianga Yamada-Taylor has shown so persuasively, when the solution to the racial wealth gap is essentially the federal government pumping up predatory finance through the private uh, home buying system, then you actually make it even worse. So we need to think of housing as just a core, both consequence of and engine of class and race and equality in this country and think about the most ambitious possible federal program to attack that. You know, why I wrote this piece in terms of the Green New Deal is that the case for dealing with extreme weather, the case for decarbonizing the built environment and the case for addressing inequality all pass through housing. The housing market uh, or the housing patterns of housing, geographical patterns of housing are deeply segregated along economic and racial lines. And any kind of program of the sort you're talking about will have to uh, address those issues. How do we think about that? How do we address them? That's absolutely right. So this is an issue that one shouldn't exaggerate uh, Twitter threads as a form of public debate exactly. But but it is. Um, and you know, a lot of the, the reaction to my piece on Twitter has been about this. Interestingly enough, the state that has probably done the most to uh, enforce low-income housing in you know, n- towns and neighborhoods that don't want it because of you know, white suburban racism, basically, uh, is New Jersey. And this stems from a legal battle in the 1970s, basically trying to get the Fair Housing Act enforced because uh, white homeowners were essentially using zoning to prevent the construction of apartments and to actually even sort of essentially evict de facto you know, low-income but informally housed uh, people there. And what's interesting is at this time, you have uh, unions like the UAW, which at the time had a large number of workers of color uh, working in New Jersey, many of them commuting from the Bronx. And so you get a kind of coalition of left-wing lawyers who had been funded through the Great Society, community organizers uh, across the state, labor, and then their allies engaged in like a decades-long legal fight that resulted in essentially state laws repeatedly strengthened over time. Uh, that forced towns to affirmatively zone for uh, affordable housing. But anyway, long story short, very broad-based social movement, strongly linked to labor, and with an activist kind of governmental policy that this movement has has forced to to persist, does create the conditions for legal instruments that require you know every every town in New Jersey 
to have um, affordable housing, and it's built t- tends to be in, in apartments. So I think that you have to think about the New Jersey model and going federally with it, and you have to think about, again, with an analogy to healthcare, very aggressive carrots and sticks from the federal government requiring that states enact provisions that go beyond what we've seen in the Fair Housing Act federally, which is not strong enough. And I think what you see in New Jersey is that there is a real model of coalitional politics to actually enforce this kind of mandate. It's going to be very, very challenging to build a ton of affordable housing in places where communities are resistant to it. However, bizarrely enough, New Jersey, I mean, in other states, but especially New Jersey, does point us toward the kind of social organization that it's going to take to make that happen. And it's, it's not impossible. I mean, if you can do it in New Jersey, uh, whose white suburbs are not anybody's model of multicultural tolerance, uh, then you can do it across the country. I'm speaking with Daniel Aldana Cohen, assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and author of a piece on the role of housing in a Green New Deal in Jacobin Magazine. It's not just new housing that we need, right? Uh, I'm sitting in an apartment uh, that was converted to residential from industrial about a little over 10 years ago. And the windows, which are fairly new, uh, leak cold air in the winter. I can feel a breeze now as we're talking. How do we address all these you know, hundreds of millions of existing buildings in, in this kind of uh, Green New Deal uh, housing scheme? Yeah, that's a great question. I've tried to, to track this down, and it's difficult. There are federally, state, municipally endless programs of low-income weatherization. And everybody has known forever that low-income weatherization, or simply weatherization in general, should decrease costs for homeowners, be more efficient, create jobs, ideally environmental justice jobs, uh, and so on. So there's definitely an aspect to it which is not enough political will has been thrown behind this. And a Green New Deal could do that. And that's, you know, weatherization is the strongest element of the building's proposal in um, AOC's resolution. However, that being said, what you find when you look into this and you look at the experts and what they're saying, there's just no way to avoid building upgrades being a slog. In New York City, there's really interesting legislation that will probably pass. And normally, big commercial buildings you can do quickly. I've advocated elsewhere, taking organizations like NYCHA, New York City Public Housing Authority, and retrofitting those buildings, which are, which are big, could have a huge bang for your buck. They're great models from Boston, Toronto, Paris, and elsewhere on how to uh, do deep energy retrofits of public housing. Um, so you kind of go after the, the big ones, but there's simply no way to avoid a 10 to 15 year process to go and be swapping out old boilers, old water heaters, and eventually taking essentially natural gas out of every single building in the country. My point isn't that that isn't important or that shouldn't be done. It should. But a massive build out of no carbon public housing is going to be training the workers on these kinds of skills, and it's going to basically suck the carbon out of new construction. So you need strategies that will do this very short-term work, and we'll put a lot of skills training on, in, onto the table right away, um, and then you'll have the upgrades going on at the same time. But I don't think upgrades alone with a really aggressive public new construction uh, are going to get the job done, and it's just unrealistic to expect that by 2025, everybody's going to have new windows, new boilers, and so on. But this, this sort of uh, retrofitting old buildings and building uh, no-carbon new ones would uh, create lots and lots of high-paying, skilled jobs. This is a more benefit than cost, given the, the, the standard logic of cost-benefit thinking that dominates uh, the, the, this field. This is just benefit-benefit, uh, even if it does cost something. No, I mean, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I mean, this is investment politics. And I think this is something, strangely, that the centrist critics of the Green New Deal can't understand because they're so blinded by their own ideology, which is that investment is popular. And when you're spending money, people like it. I mean, people get jobs, people get physical benefits to their homes. You know, this is huge. And I, you know, I should add, there's a statistic in my housing piece pertaining to what you said earlier, you know, 50% of black households and, and 20% of white households in the mid-Atlantic, just to take one region, are facing fuel poverty, you know, really serious problems because they can't afford to pay for their utility bills. And, and you, would t- you would target those, of course, first. And you have these jobs. So the idea that somehow a Green New Deal proposal that creates jobs and that creates economic activity is going to be less popular than a version of the Green New Deal that creates fewer jobs, creates less economic opportunity, creates fewer benefits for ordinary people. I mean, that's just insane. And frankly, we know in the, in the United States what it looks like to have kind of like skinny Green New Deals, let's say, to, to borrow a phrase from Paul Ryan. Uh, Washington State proposed a really cool carbon tax, super progressive with a bunch of investment and voters rejected it. I thought it was a great idea. Voters rejected it. We've seen uh, in Colorado and some other places kind of pricing type mechanisms not really working out. And we saw, of course, with cap and trade, which was not exactly sort of like skinny on carbon and bloated on corporate benefits. But nonetheless, a kind of all stakeholder process in 2009, an effort to cap and trade in the U.S. 
which Pelosi uh, pushed through in, in Congress and never even came to the floor in the Senate. And that failed. So you have essentially a bunch of quote unquote realists who are quote unquote non-ideological who are trying to take the most popular climate policy that's ever been conceived and turn it into the unpopular policies that have already failed. And why is it? Because they're just ideologically incapable of understanding that once you start investing in things that improve people's everyday lives, they're going to really like it. Um, and, you know, we talk about the New Deal, but we don't, you don't need a PhD in history to understand the basics of this. You simply need to be able to see with like your own eyes beyond what they think is acceptable to Washington Cocktail Party. Environmentalists are often caricatured with uh, malign political intent as being people who want to kill your jobs, take things away from you, and uh, enemies of luxury and, and you know, scolds of, of the worst sort. You write uh, at some length about uh, Vienna, public housing Vienna specifically, uh, and also the, generally the, the municipal government of Red Vienna. One of the things I, I liked about the article is that you really talk about making these beautiful houses, making these beautiful public spaces. We're not talking about just some sort of you know, functional basic construction. We're talking about stuff that's architecturally beautiful and uh, encourages social interaction, uh, that encourages sociability. This is not barracks. This is something uh, much more um, elevated. That's absolutely right. Right or wrong, environmentalists have been tagged often as being essentially green austerians. But what does it actually look like if we think in the most visceral sense of what really exciting climate change politics could yield, and if we think in specific uh, terms about housing? So Red Vienna is just this incredible case of pretty left-wing politics in a city. Um, Red Vienna comes about after the First World War, of course, in Vienna. The Social Democrats win an election, and they have never lost lost a fair election since. They were beaten in a civil war by the Nazis. Um, and they've sometimes been in coalitions, but they have never been dislodged in a, in a fair election. And the Social Democratic Party in Vienna is, is interesting because the communists never leave it. So it remains a kind of solidly leftist party. So what do they do when they come to power? They, get, they negotiate with the, the national government to get taxing authority. They levy extremely punishing taxes on uh, luxuries from like champagne to racehorses to servants, although I'm told only the second servant was taxed. <laughs> the first one is considered kind of a necessity or something like that. Moderation. <laughs> Moderation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you got to keep the aristocracy from going crazy on you. And they also impose very punishing real estate taxes, which crash the land market and make it possible to buy up land. So one third of the housing um, budget for Red Vienna comes out of these luxury taxes, which is really important, actually. It's a very clear redistributive politics. And so they fund this housing and, this and the housing that is created in, in Red Vienna is just extraordinary. It's very beautiful. There are huge uh, gardens, beautiful stairways, you know, covered in glass so that the light is always pouring in. They have things like libraries, cultural centers, dental clinics, and they build this housing all over the city. And this is an explicit politics. No one should know from your zip code who you are. Anybody can, can live anywhere. And one could go on about Red Vienna and this really exciting moment in the, in the 20s and 30s where essentially public health and feminist and labor politics all converge. The kind of the heirs of the 1848 European uprising create this fantastic city. But this is not just a historical lesson. I mean, right now in Vienna, only about one third of the housing is private market. One third is public housing built and, and operated by the city, uh, municipal agencies. And then another third is cooperative housing, which is sort of the lion's share of housing construction in the last few decades. And the cooperative housing is extraordinary. It's unbelievably beautiful. And I was down there uh, this past summer, and you have these kind of like rolling, beautifully designed gardens. You have balconies that have sort of like sliding glass doors that can you know, open or close. I mean, extreme variety of, of construction. They're often built by unions, not exclusively. They're like limited equity crop. You pay a few tens of thousands of euros to get in, but a certain number of units is reserved 10 to 20% in almost every one of these constructions for people who can't, can't afford to pay the lump sum. So it is... It is affordable, and, and you then have the private market, which is just one-third of the market, uh, very high quality and very cheap, because, of course, it has to compete with this very good uh, other housing. And you think about things like means testing. They have just imposed means testing. So to get into public housing now, you can't make more than roughly $100,000 a year if you're a single person. So the housing in Red Vienna is, is truly fantastic. And what I, I talk about in the Jacobin piece is that there's a really interesting legacy of this in the United States. Now, I want to note that actually the right analogy for Red Vienna in the U.S. wouldn't be uh, NYCHA and, and federal public housing, which I think we should defend, but is really the sort of socialist, cooperative, largely Jewish housing built, for the most part, um, in, in Queens and the Bronx, and then before that by private developers. It's a similar kind of garden apartment style. Really, really great housing. That model became public housing in Vienna, but in the U.S. it didn't quite. But there's this interesting one case, which I didn't know about until I was researching this article, the Amalgamated Dwellings, which is a Jewish socialist co-op built in the Lower East Side. 
built by this Hungarian architect called Roland Wonk, who came over in the 1920s. Uh, this building was built in 1931, and it's a very explicit homage to Red Vienna. It's an extremely beautiful building, kind of Art Deco building, these lovely curved doorways. It, too, had a theater with a stage in it. It, too, had a library in it. Very different from, actually, the other buildings built even by the same architectural firm, because this architect, Roland Wonk, really wanted to show an affinity to Red Vienna. And what's so amazing is that after Wonk designs this building and then this rail terminal in Cincinnati, he goes on to become the chief architect of the Tennessee Valley Authority, which built a ton of uh, hydroelectric dams all across the south of the U.S. And Wonk built the dams. He actually was hired to build workers' housing, but he said, no, show me the dam you know, architectural drawings. He said, no, actually, you should do a much more beautiful dam. And we'll set up viewing platforms and we'll sculpt approach roads. So when you're coming to the dam, you see it as if it were the Acropolis as you come around the mountain. And the point of this is to sort of very, very explicitly use design to show people in the South, this power belongs to you. This is done for you. This is really your achievement. And we are just the architects of that. So he builds really beautiful workers' housing, which is racist and exclusionary as the New Deal norm. And we can't do that again. But design-wise, very interesting. The first green belt uh, in the U.S., Wonk built in, in this town next to this first dam that he built. And he was also very important in the Rural Electrification Administration, which brought um, electricity cooperatives to rural United States. I tell this kind of extended story to illustrate an idea that there is this historical precedent which says, no, housing is not a local neighborhood issue. It is an issue of national import. And there's a very clear linkage, in this case through this human being, very clear linkage between public power for public benefit um, and imagined and created by intellectuals who saw themselves as truly parts of the people and the idea of public housing, which likewise is for people so it's kind of flourished. There were balconies on the roof of this housing unit in, in Manhattan so that people could have dance parties at night. This is really a beautiful thing. And we live in common in a sort of beautiful way. So, yeah, I appreciate the question and the, and the chance to talk about this. It's, it's really a shame that the environmental movement's most visceral idea is like a hemp T-shirt or something or a green juice. But what is really viscerally possible about a Green New Deal and about really smart climate politics more generally is just the best things the human mind can come up with to organize collective social life with a real public affluence. We really need to spread that message uh, in every way that we can. In conclusion, um, it, it seems that the best of the New Deal kind of housing you're talking about, the collective housing produced by these cooperatives, the, the public housing produced in Vienna, all of these things share a very expansive, ambitious view of the public sector um, as, as, as a glorious thing. And also as a beautiful thing. An awful lot of New Deal projects are made to be beautiful as well as functional and you know, economically stimulative. We seem to have lost the capacity to think of the public sector in those terms. Everything public now means crappy, but we need to uh, get back to that old notion of, of, of a collective beauty. That's right. I mean, Robert Moses has one great contribution to New York City were the swimming pools he built during the New Deal, which are all over the city still and, and are gorgeous. If we're going to end, I think we should end on this idea that, that Wonk has. So in 1941, he writes this incredible essay about modern architecture. The war has just started. And he sort of says, listen, we live in a world of radical uncertainty. And there is just nothing to be done with that. We have to embrace the fact that we live with this world of radical uncertainty, which to me calls very explicitly to mind the kinds of uncertainties caused by climate change. And he says, we have no choice but to kind of double down, to join the struggle when the passion is hot. And he says, we have nowhere to go but forward. To me, this is a very inspiring notion. I mean, it's when you really don't know what's coming, you just have to plow ahead, constructing the kind of physically building the world that we want to live in. And there is a real opportunity to do this with the Green New Deal idea. There are innumerable opponents who want to like clip the wings of a public solution to this crisis caused by rapacious private capitalism. And again, if, if you stop focusing on the carbon numbers only or the turbines or the panels and think what viscerally in our everyday life is available, you know, what can we change? What can we make better? What are the benefits? It's huge. And housing is where we live. I mean, it is literally where we live. The stones, the bricks, the glass, the steel, all of that is the world that we're kind of encased in. And I think we have just a huge opportunity to take that material and use it to build a really beautiful world. That was Daniel Aldana Cohen, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and author of A Green New Deal for Housing in Jacobin, part of the magazine's ongoing series on the Green New Deal. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of the gig from Bach's Partita No. 1, performed by Glenn Gould. Next, fake news, CIA style. Joel Whitney was on this show a couple of years ago to talk about his book, Thinks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers, a look at how the agency used scribblers and editors to fight the Cold War, with special emphasis on the Paris Review's role. Whitney recently had a piece in Truthdig, occasioned by the publication of an Iranian edition of Thinks, reviewing the CIA's history with fake news, focusing particularly on the overthrow of Mossadegh in Iran, but also Arbenz in Guatemala, Allende in Chile, and Sukarno in Indonesia. A key outlet for the agency's propaganda was Encounter, a highbrow magazine founded by the poet Stephen Spender and Irving Kristol, a former Trotskyist who then identifies as a liberal who would later become one of the founders of neoconservatism. Here's Joel Whitney. Iran is much in the news these days, uh, as it has been for the last 40 or 50 years. But it's it's remarkable how Americans uh, have trouble understanding the hostility of countries, not just like Iran, but also uh, North Korea. Uh, They just have no capacity for understanding why these people don't like us. The CIA and fake news, fake news also much in the news these days, the CIA has a long history with fake news, and a lot of it comes together in this story about Iran. You open the article with this uh, tale of the article in um, Encounter by F.R. Alamont. What did his letter from Tehran inform us? I was asked to do a preface for an edition of my book that's coming out soon in Iran. So I went back to the files of the year and a half after my book had already come out. And there's a lot of stuff in the Encounter archives that I hadn't seen. My book ended up um, looking at magazines across different countries and regions, and Encounter kind of remains the flagship standard bearer for the CIA's period of highbrow magazine publishing. And it was a case where now that it's archived online, you can do keyword searches. Uh, as a reminder, it was the, the British, um, the London-based magazine that CIA founded in uh, 1953, the same year that the Iran coup will go down. And uh, there were people, uh, as has been reported before, um, involved in both. So people who were setting up during the summer of 1953, setting up this magazine to help generate a a more highbrow reputation for the United States um, in terms of culture, cultural production. People who were setting that up then turned to... (laughs) to uh, this question of overthrowing uh, a leader there. Parenthetically, it's, it's striking, uh, given you know, the leadership of today's CIA, that they ever cared about what highbrows thought. Yeah, I think they thought of it as mission critical. First, they thought the Western Europeans uh, are proud of their culture. And if the Soviets can make the case, or if any quirks of American culture could help make the case that we're thuggish and lowbrow and don't have a high culture, then that might help convert, you know, Western European intellectuals to the to the implicitly cultural leftist cause. So they were explicitly pushing back in Europe against this idea that the United States didn't have a highbrow culture. And people were working on that, launching a magazine encounter alongside figuring out how to overthrow uh, somebody in Iran called Mohammed Mossadegh. Um, He was elected to parliament a few times, and um, he wanted to nationalize uh, Iranian oil from the British, take it back from the British. So I started this this article in Truthdig um, as an exploration of that, to look for anything I might have missed or that wasn't in the book that might be uh, interesting, to read uh, in the context of the book coming out in Iran. And it was just interesting. I didn't see how many of these articles existed where within a year of a coup or of some, you know, improper U.S. uh, or even illegal U.S. uh, action overseas, there was uh, kind of an outright apology or defense or misdirection in encounter. The Orientalism and the caricature of, of Mossadegh that appeared in the counter was, was quite striking. What were they saying about him? First of all, he was out of office, and it seemed like they were trying to blame in, in, in 1954, you know, the year after they, they removed him. They're trying to blame uh, Iran's problems on him. And they were turning a lot of his strengths into weaknesses. He was known to be an emotive speaker. He was known to get fired up before his audiences and I think a lot of Americans at the time overstated how occasionally he would he would weep before an audience um, but but the the reality was he was elected several times to parliament when his predecessor in the 50s was killed uh, he was appointed by the Shah 
That that's a remarkable point. He was appointed by the Shah, who would eventually conspire in his overthrow. Yeah, he was appointed by the Shah, and there was a lot of coalition building going on then. It was a democratic country, of course, before we before we got to it. And um, what effectively happened was we had to sort of buy off the Shah uh, to get him to renounce or sort of rescind uh, Mossadegh's right to rule um, through these decrees. Those decrees would be reported on in reputable places like the New York Times, somewhat dishonestly, uh, and then they would get a second hearing in some of the little magazines. In this case, I think the new leader played a role, and then Encounter comes in uh, to do cleanup and to sort of change the story about who was who. So the Orientalism was part of this idea that he was emotive, that he was charismatic, rather than what he was, which was an elected leader and uh, appointed by the, the Shah. The Shah gets bought off first, and then the religious groups had to be bought into to lead these street protests to create chaos. There would have been probably economic sanctions, a lot of disinformation in the local media, pamphlets being spread by CIA people, sometimes British intelligence people, to help create this, uh, this feeling of absolute and utter chaos that will then um, scare the local population into thinking, well, maybe there is something wrong with Mossadegh's rule. And then it all gets blamed on Mossadegh in the encounter. As with Afghanistan a few decades later, uh, the uh, CIA uh, and the, you know, the U.S. security establishment used conservative religious forces to promote their aims. And then these are forces that would eventually come and bite them on the ass. Uh, so how, how did the, the religious forces figure in the Iran story? In the Iran story, the conservative leaders were part of a coalition that quite normally believed that uh, sovereignty was sacred uh, in international law, that their borders and their resources ought to belong to them, and that after European and American tendencies were being asked to leave in the post-colonial times that we were in after World War II, they should own their resources. So there was talk uh, across many political groups, including those conservative mullahs, about nationalizing BP, British Petroleum, which went by several other names before it was British Petroleum. And when the British were um, lacked the resources to commit a coup, they, um, they first started talking to the Truman administration. And the Truman administration actually generally approved of Mossadegh, who was Times Man of the Year, I think, in 1952. Um, and then when Truman um, is being succeeded by Eisenhower, what you see is this new kind of hawkishness among CIA people who wanted to do the coup anyway. They know that they can talk Eisenhower into it. They do. The Eisenhower administration is now on board. So the two steps that they need to do now that they have partners in, in the country who know the country well, that's the British, they think that they can get the Shah to come aboard. They do that through bribery. And then effectively, they bribe the um, conservative religious figures to create these um, protests in the street that look like mass movements, which will be backed with um, CIA cash, CIA people, CIA personnel, British intelligence. And so they're effectively doing this idea of democracy in the streets. But then when it's all said and done, Encounter comes in and blames all that on Mossadegh himself. Well, it was it was basically the CIA using something in 1953 in Iran that they will use later, mass chaos, buying off the religious right. And this was exactly what leads to the 1979 street protest. It is a little bit confusing to say we reinstalled the Shah. The reason people say that is because when the initial attempt at, for him to rescind Mossadegh's leadership, he got scared and there was chaos and he fled to Italy. So the U.S. kind of brought him back and bought him off. And they did that in tandem with these massive street protests, which then led to the coup. I'm speaking with Joel Whitney, author of Thinks. And then let's talk some about Indonesia, which is an interesting case. Um, curiously, Obama's mother was in Indonesia working for the Ford Foundation just after the coup. The Ford Foundation was deeply involved in that coup, so it always made me wonder about just what she was up to in Indonesia. What was the this, this CIA encounter crowd up to uh, in in that country? First of all, there was a messy coup in the late in the late fifties um, that failed. The CIA had tried to pull off. They did it by arming anti-communists and sending over planes and creating chaos and I think bombing the Indonesian Navy and um, various ports. And um, they certainly committed some atrocities and, and killed a lot of innocent civilians. 
um, in the interest of creating this chaotic environment out of which they hope to overthrow the leader there, Sukarno. They really hated him. It probably didn't help that this initial attempt failed. He was, of course, one of the leaders of the non-aligned movement who said that countries like the United States and other Western powers should just stay out of the developing world. So there was this seething anger from the Eisenhower's failed coup all the way until Johnson comes in and um, they tried it again. And uh, this one seemed a little bit more organically homegrown. There had been enough support for anti-communism that the paranoia was, as I say, seething. And at a certain point, the military comes in to respond to an attempt to overthrow Sukarno. And some of Sukarno's generals then kind of declare a state of emergency. And what they do in response to what is presumed to be a communist attempt to take over the government, their respected leader, um, they engage in an anti-communist bloodbath and they just start killing people that they assume are communists. The problem with that is, of course, you, you don't know what someone uh, someone's political beliefs are once you put a bullet in their head. The CIA and the State Department appear to have been watching this happen. There's articles in the Times about this. But effectively, at least 500,000 people were said to have been killed in the six-month uh, emergency government, which led to Sukarno, uh, the kind of non-aligned hero, telling the U.S. to stay out, him being furloughed during that period and then overthrown. And that this led to the military dictatorship of Suharto, uh, who became our, our ally with a lot of blood on his hand, hands. Um, so what's well reported now is that the U.S. was watching, they were cheerleading, and they were actively feeding these generals lists of people they suspected of being communists. What's problematic about that is that the idea of being Chinese was often an indictment in terms of your political beliefs. So Chinese nationals were killed, students were killed, and I just sort of divided 500,000 by the, the several months that this lasted, and you get up to 80,000 people being killed a month with the U.S. watching, cheerleading, and assisting. Did Encounter have any commentaries on this? Yeah, while it's going on, Encounter uh, does this long survey of the prospects of Indonesian democracy, Indonesian culture, and they are subtle about it, but they effectively paint the picture of the United States as always there to lend a hand they do some more of this oriental buzzwords that we saw in Aleman's article on Mossadegh. They talk about charismatic leaders rather than trustworthy Democrats. And they're talking, of course, explicitly about Sukarno, our leftist enemy, who's already been overthrown in this process. At the time that they're writing, he's furloughed. He's probably effectively under house arrest, and he will be removed at the end of this process. So they're publishing this while the State Department, while the CIA are giving lists of people they should, that should be arrested, knowing that they're going to be killed. And good old encounter is there to say, well, it's effectively their fault. They don't have any good leaders there. And it was all their own fault. And it was all the leftists' fault. And a not dissimilar story in Guatemala. Yeah. In Guatemala, like with Iran, it's still, encounter is still a new uh, instrument of subtle U.S. Uh, power manipulations. They're not directly involved, as far as I found, but the new leader was one of these friendly CIA magazines that was founded before the CIA. It was reliably anti-communist. That had deep connections to the labor movement, right? Yeah, they, they had connections to the labor movement. Of course, the U.S. was making sure that labor movements abroad were effectively packed with CIA-friendly people to counter any labor movements that were packed with Soviet-paid people in their, in their suspicions. And the new leader was effectively bought by the CIA in the late 40s. It was effectively part of this network of CIA-friendly publications. And um, they run an article during the uh, build-up to um, the Guatemalan coup in 1954 that asks if our Benz, our boogeyman there, was, was communist. Um, they also run ads that are effectively payments from the United Fruit Company for humanitarian organizations, which is a way to, you know, to potentially, some people think, buy them off for doing this, this kind of work. I was looking for articles in Encounter and other official CIA magazines, magazines that were, were started by, by the CIA, 
And I, I was aware that a lot of people thought that it was true that these magazines ran great writers. They were generally propaganda free and uh, they never censored and there were no strings. Frances Stoner Saunders, who wrote about these magazines before I did, she proved that at Encounter, the main one, there was official censorship. Um, and that's harder to prove than anything else because you have to find in the editorial letters where they spell out how they're going to censor it. She did a great job. That was kind of revelatory. And what I was looking for at the other magazines like Combate and Cuadernos in Latin America, I was looking for that official diktat that we would we would censor, and I found it. Um, so that proves that they did censor across the board. It was official at several magazines. I came to understand the fact that they had so many great authors as part of the cover. You can see that as a, as a benefit. You know, there's no strings of publishing great writing. It's just soft power. No big deal. The way I look at it is there was a percentage that they knew would be convincing that it wasn't propaganda that would make the occasional piece of propaganda work. And I was trying to ask, what was that percentage? Was it one out of 10 where they would, where they would do like this hard propaganda to try to misinform readers? Uh, whatever the percentage is, I haven't fully calculated it. Um, but you can surmise that if they did publish a lot of good stuff that was critical of U.S. policy occasionally, they were doing that as something that would make it effective to do some propaganda some of the time. And that's what I'm looking for when I'm reading things in the age of Trump. Why does this matter now? Well, we're seeing propaganda in places like Venezuela. We're seeing propaganda in places where the U.S. wants to have a more interventionist role. We've seen a lot of propaganda about Honduras and a lot of misinformation. And I think that if people see historically how this worked, which is you know why I'm obsessed with this a little bit too much um, when I should be writing the next book, if you can see how this works in the age of Trump, you're better at reading the news. Something that struck me in the piece was uh, the, uh, the, uh, the apologetics they ran for Jim Crow, because I thought you know, U.S. elite opinion was trying to make us seem more humane to parts of the world that were undergoing decolonization, and segregation would not be good for that image. But uh, they were writing apologetics for segregation. Movements of the left often overlapped with civil rights movements, and one of the lazy ways that McCarthyites would try to discredit leftist movements would just be to do the to do the whole communist thing seeing this sophisticated cultural cia do the same thing even though they were also good at scoring points by distancing themselves from mccarthyism um, was interesting to me and the way i come to see it is what the cia also was doing with these cultural magazines was building a sort of a consensus of grown-ups so it would be the the vital center so occasionally they're publishing conservatives who are part of this muscle flexing in the interest of a vital center across the NATO countries, conservative voices alongside liberal voices united against anything communistic or too left wing. So you end up with these pieces that do not hold up and that also demonstrate this percentage of what I think of as kind of hard propaganda. The piece in, in question that we're talking about is by a Scottish author named Brogan, who, like most of these writers, doesn't hold up as hugely important uh, reputation-wise. And he was basically saying the effective uh, slogan, slow down, and he's reviewing a book about the South and how, you know, the Southern whites sort of resent the North for trying to push too hard. It was just surprising to see that this magazine that's targeting European intellectuals who would uh, strongly resent American racism that this would be there at all it, it was striking, but it's not part of the story that I had heard about Encounter previously from people who, who put it in the category of the cultural Cold War. So I thought it was important to, to note that. The target audience for Encounter, is, as you said, was mostly European intellectuals, uh, and the CIA had historically been banned from doing domestic propaganda. Something I uh, stumbled over was that uh, there was some CIA money involved in the founding of the public interest, the neoconservative uh, journal that Irving Kristol and a few of his comrades founded. How did that come to be? Yeah, that's another example that was found initially by Francis Stoner Saunders, whose work on this is indispensable. Initially, uh, Christopher Lash coins the phrase the cultural Cold War. Francis Stoner Saunders in the UK uh, almost single-handedly creates this revisionist idea. Most people who wrote about the cultural Cold War were apologists who'd already participated in it, and she sort of set a new tone by finding things that happened uh, beyond the awareness of most Americans and Europeans who would have been interested. Um, and she, in the archives, found that uh, some money had gone to founding the public interest. Now, 
that consensus, that that vital center, um, that was a coinage of uh, our friend Arthur Schlesinger. This was important to those folks who were trying to do, you know, when we look at the, the people inside the, the Trump administration who sound a little more neoconservative, we call them the grown-ups in the room. Neoconservative as a movement grows out of the public interest, which is founded in 1965 with a huge infusion, well, relatively large infusion of CIA cash, $10,000 in 1965. And immediately it starts pushing back on things like public public education and you know, social security and creating the what becomes the neoconservative agenda before the before the term neoconservative was even used. But yeah, that grows out of Irving Kristol having been an editor of one of the CIA magazines Encounter, the one we've been talking about. Um, he's co-founding editor with uh, British editor and poet Stephen Spender, and he's one of the ones who's probably pushing a lot of these conservatives into its pages, or as they would have been seen at the time, centrists um, who move further and further to the right, as he did. Yeah, the CIA likes to defend its legacy or it likes to uh, encourage, I guess, others to defend its legacy by saying it had democratic socialist tendencies. I mean, it did in Europe when that would work, when it seemed like that was the crowd they wanted to seduce. But they certainly played a role in founding the public interest, which was a movement magazine for neoconservatism. If you look at the masthead, too, of the National Review, which was an apologist magazine for segregation when it launched. You have, I think, four CIA veterans on the masthead. So the CIA has done, and this is another point I'm making in the, in the truth dig piece, it has done its share of pushing forward conservative ideas when it seems like it will benefit their agenda. William Buckley himself had some uh, history with the CIA. He had been a CIA officer um, doing this kind of thing, publishing uh, anti-communist books in Mexico under E. Howard Hunt. And when he had his TV show, Nixon was found in some transcript to have said, we'll get Buckley to defend E. Howard Hunt during the Watergate hearings. And it was as if Nixon understood that this former CIA agent in the media could be called upon to do you know, propaganda for the Nixon administration. And at the end of the piece, you uh, say that uh, the, the former ban on domestic propaganda by US, uh, the U.S. government was lifted under the Obama administration, I believe, in 2013. It became legal for uh, the propaganda arms of the U.S. government to, to do their work at home as well as abroad. I, I was surprised. I hadn't really noticed that before, but uh, that's quite a story. Yeah, this is one of uh, Michael Hastings' best unknown stories. Um, he started watching this uh, movement in the Congress and the Senate to rescind this in 2012. He first reported on it for BuzzFeed, um, and then eventually uh, it came it came up in defense authorization bill, which Obama must have otherwise approved of. It's not clear why the Obama administration was okay with this. If one wants to surmise, one can see that there's a long pattern of the CIA's propaganda abroad coming home, and then the CIA, even to defend its secrecy, penetrates the media at home. Uh, this is reported by the New York Times in 1977, which I link out to in, in the Truth Dig article. John Crudson reports it in December 77, and Carl Bernstein reports it for Rolling Stone in October. 77. So effectively, since at least the 70s, probably much earlier, you're seeing a lot of propaganda coming home and actually being targeted to exist here in the U.S. So it was kind of by by 2013 a technicality. But it is of interest to me that, you know, our first big presidential election, which sees the Democrats picking up what seems like it was a Jeb Bush opposition report by someone affiliated with British intelligence, Christopher Steele. You're seeing a Democrat do that. You're seeing Trump calling out. This is clever. Trump knows this history somehow implicitly of of all kinds of fake news uh, going on, propaganda going on. And he calls it out. And Trump shouldn't be able to score points. But the fact that we haven't had an honest conversation about all the propaganda we do for our interventions in places like Venezuela or our desired interventions scores Trump's points. And I think Trump is in on it, just just as any president will be. But that election, 2016, it should have felt differently if it was the first time since the 50s that it was technically not illegal to do propaganda to the American public. That does help explain some of the energy to blame the Russians. Absolutely. That was Joel Whitney, author of Thinks, a look at the CIA's use of the Paris Review for publishing high-end propaganda. His piece on the agency's use of fake news disseminated through publications like Encounter is on the Truthdig website. 
That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a different performance of the Gigue from Bach's Partita No. 1, this by Andras Schiff. Till next week, bye.